Welcome to the Book of Mormon Essential Come Follow Me podcast with your hosts, Lynn Wilson and John Cho. Shalom. Good to be with you. Yeah. This week we are coming Esther. Great book. Yeah. Even if the name God is not mentioned, so the Dead Sea Scrolls <laughs> does not odd. include it. Actually, I don't even know if that's the reason why the Dead Sea Scrolls don't include it. But I do think that Esther is a type of the Savior. Yeah. One person is doing something, um, sacrificing her life if needed to save thousands of her people. So whether or not the name of God is, I see the hand of God in their lives. And it's a great little book. Yeah. So 10 chapters, right? Yep. Nice and short. Nice and short. But let's go through historically the setting here. Now, we've already covered Ezra and Nehemiah, which Yeah, and, and the, this book here. fits right in the middle of, of Ezra. Ezra. Okay. In fact, just, just as some big dates to clump onto. So the Babylonian captivity is... 10 years on either side of Lehi's departure. So about 600 BC, you know, and then there's three different groups that go to Babylon. And then they're in Babylon for 70 years and King Cyrus, the the Persian king, allows the first group to go back. But very few actually do. It's about one sixth of the priesthood holders leave Babylon and the rest stay. And not that... um, I think Esther and um, her cousin, Mordecai, are from the tribe of Benjamin, I think it mentions. So they wouldn't have temple responsibilities anyway, but they stay. And um, we've had three kings. Um, We have had Cyrus and then Darius and then Xerxes. And it says here in the text of Esther, they talk about the Persian king and they use the Hebrew name, which is um, Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus? I don't know how to pronounce it. But he's better known as King Xerxes. Okay. And we know that King Xerxes reigned from 486 BC to 465 BC. So that is the time frame of Esther. So we're about 140, 120 to 40 years after Lehi's departure, if we're going to look at the Book of Mormon timeline, or if we're looking at at a New Testament timeline, I mean, as a Old Testament timeline, we're we're very close to the end of the Hebrew Bible. Um, this is one of the last books chronologically. Now, of course, we've got Malachi afterward, but um, and, but we're toward the very end. And is there anything else? I, I guess one of the other things that's sort of important, King Xerxes was that brave Persian who decided to go attack the Greeks. And two times he went with his arm, with his um, navy out to try to take over Greece. And many biblical scholars have speculated that this enormous feast that he's having after his third year of reign, this seven days feast, um, perhaps was gathering interest and momentum to go back the second time to try to attack Greece. I, I don't I don't know. But um, the first army went in 790. Um, anyway, it's, it's interesting just to see it in the historical context. So there, whatever it is, he's a very popular king. He's got a lot of momentum and a lot of money. And um, they, it sounds like they had nice meals on a regular basis. They're having right. these feasts quite regularly in this text. <laughs> I guess we should probably... Um, is there any other historical background that you want before we go Just on the to the political themes? environment, right? So, so, so they're Persians, are, right. and the Jews are living in their cities, trying to live their laws as a 
people, but interacting every day. But it's interesting. Um, Esther never is her. She's her guardian. She's an orphan. Her guardian is her first cousin, Mordecai. But Mordecai tells her not to tell people she's Jewish. So they are living in an environment where they're trying to live the laws of Moses, but not necessarily everyone knows it. So the kingdom is split. We have some people already in Jerusalem. Yes, we've already had the first 49,000 arrive in Jerusalem just within 50 years before this. But um, in in Persia, um, we've got a few... Well, I was going to say we have a few prophets, but actually, by the time of Esther, Daniel has died. Daniel was taken, you know, in that earliest group before Lehi even left um, in about 605 BCE. And Daniel has probably, this is about 50 years after Daniel's death. Okay. Um, but I, I still think we we may have another prophet or two in Persia. Um but Cyrus died um, about 60 years ago, and now we're dealing with a new king, um, or three kings down, um, Xerxes. And the reason why I think the story is so great is there's three or four subplots that all intertwine each other. And it's it's better than a good novel because these things really happened. And we've got—I mentioned earlier that we have um, records. These were great record people record keepers, the Persians, and the Cyrus stones, these clay tablets of records. And then afterward, the rest of the Persian kings kept their records. In fact, even in the book of Esther, it talks about the king waking up in the middle of the night and pulling out his history book and reading what the Mm -hmm. past kings did. So um, we're fortunate to see that. The other thing that, before we jump into the text, um, I feel like the structure is is beautiful. Again, it's a beautiful chiasmus. The whole 10 chapters, we have the banquet of the king, and it ends with a banquet honoring the Jewish new leader, Mordecai, who is this older cousin of, of Esther. Um, and then the second point is Esther becomes king. And the, the second to last is we are now having a, a feast amongst all the Jews called Purim, where we honor King Queen Esther. And the third point in this chiastic arm um, coming down from the beginning in chapter two is this contribution of Mordecai. And then the chapter three talks about this first subplot with a, a, a enemy called Haman who tries to destroy the Jews. And then um, the next point that's repeated is chapter four, where Esther agrees to help the Jews Then the next one, chapter five, Esther's banquet for the king and Haman, um, where she exposes the plot. And then the center of the book is chapter six, where Mordecai is being honored. And then as we come out, Haman's downfall, Esther saves the Jews, chapter eight, um, the pleasure of the Jews. And then in chapter nine, Mordecai initiates the destruction of the Jewish enemies and Queen Esther has this feast in the honor of Mordecai. So it, it's it, it's nice to see this consistent pattern, which I would like to remind us all is in the Book of Mormon, even um, perhaps more regularly than we find in the Old Testament. Another sign that our Restoration Scripture is an ancient text. What do you see as the themes 
The themes book. of Esther. So the most common and obvious one, I think, is in the one that inspires me every time I read it is, you know, the Lord needs you where you are. The Lord needs you where you are. Yeah. That's great. And so I've, I've taken that. I've moved a lot, <laughs> um, been, been around, been around the world a couple of times and, and I've absolutely found where things where I was, you know, growing up where I just felt like some, some, some place was always better. Mm-hmm. Some, somewhere else, you know, grass is greener kind of idea. Uh, and that I wasn't really anything special. I realized that when I leave, uh, people need, need me as I am, mm-hmm. right? And they need me exactly as I am. Yeah. Wherever and, we are, the yeah. Lord can use us. I love the phrase. In fact, it's my favorite phrase in the whole book for such a time as this. Yeah. When Mordecai is telling Esther, you know, you, you probably are on the throne because God knew that he needed you to save his people for such a time as this. I, I feel like we are all alive now on earth. The Lord has sent us to the earth now for such a time as this. We too have to stand and be Esther's in our own spheres uh, for everything. And that's, it, it, those are great themes. The other theme is I don't think that she was thinking she was going to be queen when she makes this. Well, first of all, she's a very young girl because she's not married. And culturally, you're married as soon as you can begin reproducing. Right. So she's not married. She's still a virgin. So whether she's 12 or 13 or 14 or 15, I don't know, but not much older after she goes into the court. But she goes into the court as a very young teenager. You know, I, it's hard to imagine um, her being 12 or 13 rather than 21 or 22, but that, that is when women were still virgins before they were married. And they were adults at 12 and a half. So that's historically how things probably would have fit in. Well, should we jump into the we'll text? Jump into the text. We'll, co- we'll uncover more themes as we go. Yeah. So it, we've got the great map here. Chapter one, verse two tells us where they are. Mm-hmm. This capital is right in the middle of the Persian Empire, just north of the Tigris River, um, and a little bit west of the Persian Gulf there on the Arabian Sea, modern day Iraq. And um, Shushan is now Shusha. So close enough, close a enough. little bit of a change of names. And it looks like in chapter one that um, King Xerxes is having this great feast. And at the same time, his wife, Vashti, says, well, I'm going to have a feast with all my women then. And she has a feast for seven days as well with the women while all the men are feasting away. And that's when all the trouble begins. (laughs) (laughs) You know, culturally, I I don't want to throw rocks at a different people, but um, culturally, the idea of a queen not coming when the king calls her was was pretty upsetting. And even though Vashti sounds like she would have done very well in the modern culture, we would have um, not seen anything wrong with her saying, no, I, I'm not coming right now. I'm I'm busy. Thank you. I'll be there when I can. Um, I'm, I'm hosting my own dinner party. I, I can't meet you right now. But we are told, let's look at verse 12. The king's desires are, quote, to show the people her beauty. And, of course, we know that King Queen Vashti refused. And so, according to the, um, it sounds to me like it's his counselors, the people that are with yeah, him, that 15. say, and what they're upset about is that now all the women aren't going to 
come when their husbands call. Mm. Uh, all the women are going to say, I've got other things in mind. Thanks anyway. And that it's the example that's going to trickle down. Now, their culture was very different than our culture. I would I would hope that the king would have had more compassion and said, oh, okay, you know, I'll, I'll be happy to wait until you're, you're finished, but could you come over as soon as you can? Or, you know, I, I would hope there would be some camaraderie, but it didn't end up that way. <laughs> so that's sort of the prelude, the introduction to what happens next, but they need a new queen because Vashti has just been dethroned. So chapter two starts out with introducing this, this man, Mordecai. And um, the Jews have such tight family bonds that they take care of the those people in their families who are left as orphans and they just adopt them into theirs. And that's what happens here. Mordecai is an older first cousin and it sounds like Esther's a orphan and he becomes her guardian. And that's all in chapter two. Um, and it's, I think it's Mordecai's idea. They, they live right there. They're sort of politically close to the palace and it's Mordecai's idea. It sounds like that Esther should be, she's very beautiful. Let's, you're a lovely lady. Let's have you go try to have this opportunity to sit on the throne. And um, it's more than a beauty contest, though, which I'm glad to see as we learn more about Esther. In in verse 8, we're introduced to this custodian or the, the gentleman who's in charge of the king's harem. Hegai or something, Hegai, Hegai is um, a eunuch, which was the practice in those days. Even Daniel would have been the same. Um, to, if you're going to live in close contact with the harem and the king's palace, you're, you're usually um, referred to that way as the eunuch so that um, the women are not going to be abused. But it says that when he, when Esther is brought in, um, Esther won his favor, and immediately he provided her, and I, now I'm going to change translations, I like the NIV here, with beauty treatments and special foods. <laughs> so they have this, you know... They treat her well. Yeah, they treat her well, and verse 8 continues, he assigned her seven female attendants, selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. So you've got hundreds of women all living together. And um, I think that this um, custodian of the harem sees beyond her physical beauty and sees that, you know, she won his favor because she's a good woman. And we learn later on that she's not greedy when it's her turn to go before the king. She doesn't ask for anything else. She's, no, I've got plenty. This is, I don't, I don't need anything, Um, which is dear but as we continue on in, in the verses, it looks like she's got a 12-month purification or something, six months with oil, six months with perfume. They use myrrh, interestingly, with their oil. Um, has sort of a musty odor, but that's what they used. It, it must be good for the skin because myrrh is used in embalming in Egypt as well. And do you remember the Lord, um, myrrh was... Um, part of his gift from the right. wise men as well. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. it's usually used in embalming. But um, after this 12 months of purification, it sounds like she's in the harem for at least three more years 
or maybe at least two more years, making a total of three years. I'm not exactly sure, but I assume that they were teaching all these young girls the customs, the uh, working on their education, their literacy, whatever was needed to represent the kingdom. You had to be um, uh, at least trained in the societal norms of what would be appropriate for a queen. And so that looks like that took place before she ever is brought in before the king. But after that, at least three-year period, it says in chapter 2, verse 15, when the turn came for Esther to go to the king, she asked for nothing. And I guess usually when people, when it's their turn, they they ask for a few favors. And she says, no, my my life's, my life's full. I've got plenty. You've already given me seven women to be companions. I'm, I'm in good shape. And it says, Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. And again, I'm reading from the NIV. So um, she, though, had not revealed her nationality. Um, verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and the family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. But every day he, Mordecai, walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. <laughs> so this good cousin is very interested on how his little sweetie is doing. And in verse 17, now the king was attracted to Esther more than any other woman. And then skipping down to 18. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen. And then we hear all about this great banquet that he's going to call Esther's banquet. And, um, it sounds like Mordecai always hanging around the castle allowed him to overhear some sort of a plot against the king. Do you see that in verse 21? Um, there's two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway. And for some reason, they become angry and conspire against King Xerxes. So, And I don't know if it's at the same time as the banquet. I would sort of have hoped that Mordecai could have been brought into the banquet to see his little cousin um but we aren't told any of that we don't i don't i don't know that um, and i don't know who the author is but the author does like mordecai if the center of the book is on honoring mordecai i'm sort of surprised we don't learn that but i'm sure there was a lot of pomp and circumstance going on at this uh, coronation and um if if we lived in an area where there i guess um we, can, we just have to use our imagination on what that would have been like. But as I think of a young, humble girl who is trying to um, live the law of Moses to a degree of honoring her God, I can see that the light of Christ would have shown through and her goodness probably attracted as much as her beauty, I hope. Um, but... At the end of this ceremony, the banquet, whatever, Mordecai, who has overheard this plot, tells Esther. And, and Esther then tells the king. And so after it says in verse 22 and 23, when the inquisition was made of the matter and found out that these, these fellows had been um, killed. And even though this isn't addressed for a while, it seems to me like this becomes one of the subplots and an important part of the story. And that's why it's included. Everything that's included seems to come up again later. Interesting. Okay. So there's been a plot to kill, kill the Xerxes. king. Yeah. 
And that was overturned with the help of yeah. Malachi and, and Esther. Also, it's interesting how things are written because it's it's placed right here next to um, the king, uh, the rising of the, of the queen, and this mm-hmm. idea of death and rejection and acceptance and life also will be soon used against the Jews. And it's consistent, you know, it's repeating each other back and forth. It's nice. But here's another subplot, chapter three, this Haman. It's interesting. They they call him in the text, at least the King James text, an Agagite. And we have a long history from this King Agag. So it sounds like back at the time of King Saul, there was a King Agag who was taken captive Um and I don't know if you remember this, but Saul saves him and Samuel says, no, I told you to kill him. And it sounds like perhaps Haman is one of his descendants. And the people are the Amalekites. And they were one of the first battles that Joshua and Moses, when Moses raised his arms, you know, that was right. one of the Amalekite lines. Um, so we've had, the Jews have had, or the Israelites have had uh, Rubbing shoulders with these people, if Haman, who is an Agagite, is related to this king, which I'm assuming, which most scholars assume, there's been tension between the Jews um, and his people for a long time. And so the fact that he wants revenge on Mordecai because Mordecai doesn't bow to him. So Haman's one of the king's servants, I should have said that, and he has a close relationship with the king, and he asked the king if he could use the king's seal to carry out some orders. And he's so frustrated that Mordecai doesn't bow and give him all the attention that he wants that he says, I'm just not going to attack Mordecai. I want to attack all the Jews. And that's why I think it makes sense that he actually is related to this king Mm. back 300 years ago that we've talked about 400 years ago um, that, that Samuel has killed. But unfortunately... The King Xerxes does not know what he is doing, and he agrees to let him use his seal, and he sets up an extermination order of the Jews throughout the entire—that's chapter 3, verse 7 and 13—and he stamps the seal with the king's seal and is posted in all the providences of Persia. So this is um, a little close to home for those of us who have a history in Missouri when another extermination order was sent out. but verse seven uses an important word here. In order, did you, did you did you catch this when they're trying to determine what date to have the extermination take place on? He uses some sort of a lot or a die, which is called a pur, p u r, and yeah. that becomes the root of the holiday to um, honor Queen Esther as Purim. And Purim is very early in the spring, you know, February, March time period when they still celebrate Esther's. Um, But now it's sort of like Halloween. I don't know if you've ever had friends who celebrate (laughs) Purim, but they dress in costumes and give each other candies and stuff. But the word comes from this choosing of the date for extermination. And instead of exterminating the Jews, it exterminated their enemies. You know, it, it completely reversed on their behalf. But as soon as Mordecai hears about this, I'm looking at verse four. They begin fasting, wearing sackcloth. Have you ever seen sackcloth in a museum or anything? No. 
I mean, I had this image of a potato sack. Yeah, yeah. It's much thicker than that. And I don't know if all sackcloth is created equal, but the ones I have seen are woven from camel's hair, very coarse, very prickly. And it was a good inch and a half thick. It was black. It was heavy. I just thought this would be total torture to wear this thing. Um, I, I don't know. Hopefully some were like burlap sacks. I don't know. But um, poor Esther hears that her cousin is outside naked wearing this sackcloth and she sends out some clothes immediately and says, get some clothes on and get out of here, you know. And he writes back and says, no, I've got to talk to you. I am not going to wear them. And um, she sends back servants back and forth to relay these messages And um, let's look at verse 14. Do you want to read that? Sure. The copy of the writing for the commandment to be given in every province province was published unto all people. They should be ready against that day. So that is the announcement of the extermination order. And I think I gave you the, um, just the beginning of the, of the chapter four. Um, I'm in chapter four, verse 14. Okay. Um, and they continue on where Mordecai is now speaking to her. Um, for if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, he he goes on, he says, you're going to be, it's going to be just as hard for you as it's going to be for the rest of us. You think you're going to escape just because the King doesn't know you're Jewish. A lot of other people know you're Jewish. You're, you're not going to escape. You know, they're going to, they're going to check you out too. So don't think you're going to escape from this. And, um, then he, this is when Mordecai says that line, um, who knowest whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this, that's chapter four, verse 14. And that's when Esther says to Mordecai, okay, I want you and everybody who's Jewish here in this province of Shushan to fast with me. And then she outlines what kind of fast it is. Neither eat nor drink three days, nights, or days. Uh, You know, this is a very difficult long fast. And then I will go. And then she says, and if I perish, I perish. Because she knew that she hadn't been called in by the king for 30 days. And it was against the law to go before the king without being called. Mm -hmm. You couldn't just go up and talk to him for fun. You had to wait till he called you. So her life is at stake. And the thing that amazes me is after this three-day fast, and she and her maidens, so she she has enough energy to dress in her royal robe, and she goes before the king, and the Lord softened his heart, and she is allowed to speak. You know, he lowers the scepter or whatever was their protocol. And instead of asking for this favor and explaining the situation, she invites him to a banquet. She said, I'd like to have you for dinner tonight. And could you please bring Haman with you? And then that whole meal long, she doesn't say anything. She waits till the next meal and says, um, can you come tomorrow night too? Just the two of you, please, again? You know, I, I don't know if if she's just being um, savvy politically she's or if she's scared. Yeah. Or, yeah, working, working up her courage is what it sounds like. I have no idea. It'll be interesting to talk to her in heaven and get the whole scoop. But... Um, they have this second dinner, and of course, by this time, Haman is talking to his wife. He's saying, wow, I'm in the good graces of the queen and the king. I'm I'm going to be honored. And um, we, the subplot comes up again, and the king can't sleep. Um, between these two dinners, the king can't sleep. And 
reads his old history books and says, hey, look at there was this guy who saved my life named Mordecai. Um, and I don't think we ever honored him. Could you check to see if we ever honored him? No, they didn't honor him. So Haman comes in and the next day for work and the king says, hey, what should I do to honor someone who did something great for the king? And Haman, of course, thinks it's himself and right. comes up with this spectacular plan. You know, you, I'm sure you've read the text, verses 5 and 6. It's just terrific. But um, it, the subplot just gets thicker and thicker and thicker as Haman looks more and more like a jerk. And, um, of course, it's Mordecai who's going to be honored. And so Haman, who had built this means of destroying Mordecai because he would not bow to him, um, is is now having to take him around and lead him through the town. And, you know, it's it's really quite fascinating. And I just think life is so ironic. Uh, <laughs> sometimes um, the truth is more amazing than even the fiction. And that's how it is in this situation here. But finally, at the second banquet, Esther exposes Haman's plot of the extermination of the Jews. And then she she shares that I am Jewish myself. And that's when the king says, okay, Haman has just built this 75-foot gallows. You know, it says it's 50 cubits. And sometimes a cubit wasn't 18 inches. It was just the king's measurement from elbow to fingertips. Um, but approximately, you know, 75 foot. So enormous uh, gallows that's been built here. And it was prepared to kill Mordecai. But, of course, um, we learn in Chapter 7 that it was used to kill Haman. This reminds me of a scripture in the Book of Mormon about digging a pit, right? And your enemies will fall into the pit that they've dug for you, right? I mean, in this case, probably quite literally, right? Yeah. With the gallows. This is very literal. And it sounds to me like these disciples or these um, Jewish followers of, of, of Jehovah are humble and meek and prayerful and seeking to do his will. But what happens next is not necessarily... Um, the higher law. And in the ancient world, I realized that there was usually retribution and even there's always consequences to our choices. And all over the ancient text, the Lord um, asks his people at times to kill his the enemies when they are ripening in iniquity. But what happens next in chapter 9 and 10 is is so strange to me. Um, you know, Mordecai achieves this political greatness, which is just great. He becomes this symbol of Jewish success, you know. But but I don't see it that way because the they keep this date for extermination, and now they're going to exterminate all their enemies, and they kill 75,800 people. Um, I just feel like, oh, that's not how Captain Moroni would have done it. That's not how the Lord, I mean, it sounds to me like even Saul back in 1 Samuel, I don't know if you remember this story back in 1 Samuel 11, but when Saul was made king, um, they say, oh, let's go kill those people that fought against, that were against this idea. And Saul says, um, I'll just read from 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 13, no one shall be put to death today for this day, the Lord has rescued Israel. And um, it, it just has this anticlimactic ending, for me anyway, who is trying to live the higher law when Mordecai, um, now given a place of honor 
beside the king chooses to exterminate the enemies of the Jews. And maybe I am completely out of context historically, and maybe the enemies were such a constant problem that it was a real gift to have them removed. And I hope to learn all the details in heaven. And I didn't mean to be suggesting I understood their historical context. I always am preaching the banner of <laughs> let's not judge other cultures in our generation of time. But um, there is this moral ambiguity that at this time in Ezra, back in Jerusalem, is saying, okay, men, leave your foreign wives. And yet in Persia, a Jewish girl is married to a Persian king and is using that opportunity to save people. So you see these two books at the same time, both talking about different marriages, and there's the moral ambiguity in um, that follows. I don't think it's a matter of, of a pure blood. I think it's a matter of who has a soft heart and who is willing to follow Jehovah. And obviously, um, the queen was in a different position, but I, I, as I look at it in light of the restoration, I'm just so grateful that we have a living prophet now that we can follow and listen to and guide our lives by, that in addition to the text of the scripture, we have direction from a modern prophet. Yeah, I, I think so much about that point that you just made. There's some hypocrisy there. Oh, it's nice when it works out for me, but now I'm going through purity. I, I It's almost like I have an excuse to look down on other people, right? You know, I, I keep the law, therefore I am better. I think that's something that we always have to keep an eye on pride for ourselves. Pride cometh through, before the fall. And yeah, if pride is the very source of all sin, according to President Benson, we've got to constantly be looking every day, where was I prideful or self-centered or selfish or... Right, yeah. right. Yeah, repent so, every day. So I, I, you know, this book of Esther is, for me, very inspiring where she puts it all on the line, right? You know, if I perish, I perish. Mm -hmm. I, I think of, you know, the but if not stories of... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, exactly. also in the same location of same the location. Babylonian and, Empire. And so I see that those those traditions being passed down that are so powerful. Um, and, you know, her perhaps being raised on that same story, right? Um, and for me that she wasn't thinking to become, you know, um, more than she was. She was like, I'm willing to sacrifice, right? And I'm going to do what's right. And whatever happens, the Lord's in charge. Well, and I'll protect my people. And yeah. in that light, she is a type of Christ. Yeah. Well, next week we get to do one of my favorite books in the whole world, the book of Job. Yeah. So we step out of the... The ancient Time, world, the ancient yeah, we, world. Take, we, stick, we step out of the Persian Empire and go way back to the ancient world. Yeah, look forward to that with Job. Okay, thanks. Thank you. God bless you.